0: I'm Aaron Hankin. You're listening to Life in the Balance. On this show, we oftentimes feature people whose lives are at the intersection of so many of the policy discussions that we have on our airwaves, lives that literally hang in the balance. Today, we're focusing on folks who are confronting some of our most ingrained social and political issues head on through the power of art. Baltimore is known for its thriving arts scene. A lot of artists are actually serving a dual purpose both as artists and healers through aesthetic through aesthetic es- through aesthetic expression they're quite literally restoring people and communities the uh, painter Henri matisse said art takes courage and uh, when art takes on issues like sexual assault and rape like gun violence and drug abuse when art helps us find a way to overcome and move on from trauma think it also becomes true that art builds courage. I want to welcome to the program Mallory Van Fossen. She's a trauma-informed art therapist, associate professor in Notre Dame of Maryland University's Art Therapy Program, and former president of the Maryland Art Therapy Association. Mallory, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thank you. Let's start with a basic definition. What exactly is art therapy?
1: So art therapists work in a lot of different settings, some of them work in clinical settings, others work in community-based settings in schools, uh, private sector, public sector, and you can really find art therapists in most places where you would find other mental health professionals. So it's based on the idea that art making can help reduce symptoms, help an individual to cope with trauma, uh, provide them with a means of communication through symbols, metaphors, images, just to say something that isn't possible just by using words alone.
0: I wonder if you might I wonder if you might uh, paint a picture with words of some of the different sorts of programs that fall under the umbrella of art therapy. Uh what what kind of artwork is being done and sort of what the re- what the results of those projects are emotionally.
1: So there are a lot of different programs that involve. um, There's an excellent one at My Sister's Place um, downtown in Baltimore in Midtown um, where women are using art in order to communicate with each other, to relate to one another, to share their experiences and their stories. And it's really been incredible what the outcome um, has been from that. It's kind of an open studio model, so they'll they'll come in, um, make artwork together. Um, Sometimes they'll occasionally have art shows, and that really gives them a sense of belonging and a sense of community amongst each other and fitting in within the community as well. In situations where they might feel as though, um, feel disconnected from, or feel like uh, maybe they they need they need something else in their lives in order to make meaning from their experiences.
0: You mentioned that uh, you get some resistance from folks uh, to the idea of art therapy. What's the point of this? What am I going to get out of this? Uh, Is there a general skepticism about uh, art as a? A route to therapy? Are there misconceptions about what it is, how it works, if it works?
1: I think so, and even though the field has been around for about 50 years now, it's still relatively new as it's immersing itself um, kind of into the mainstream mental health treatment. A lot of times people will ask me if it's therapy for artists, which isn't really the case. Um, Most often people think it's just for children, too. Um, Typically as humans, we stop making artwork around the age of 11 or 12 if we don't receive positive reinforcement to continue, so when people pick up art materials, it'll kind of bring them back to that state of being a kid. And that's um really been shown to work for folks across the lifespan, so it's not necessarily something that's just for children. The other one that's really timely right now is um, folks will think that, oh well, coloring books, coloring books are art therapy, um, but that kind of takes away the therapeutic relationship that you have when actually sitting with and talking to a therapist. Um, although coloring books might help to impose structure or uh, decrease the person's blood pressure or allow them to um, feel centered, it's not really going to resolve some of the issues that might be causing those symptoms in the first place. So it's important to make sure that you have that other component as well, um, which which is created through the therapeutic relationship of having that person in front of you.
0: That's interesting to think about. Yeah, the the art is sort of the shoulder to shoulder activity that the two of you might be looking at and doing together that is sort of breaks the ice for or loosens up the relationship for that deeper conversation.
1: Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's almost like a triangle because when you're speaking with a verbal therapist, it's just you, uh, you two one-on-one. But when you have art making also that's imposed, you have this tertiary object or um, this process that kind of takes the pressure off, which can make it a lot less, uh, feel a lot less intrusive or feel a lot less vulnerable in order to have this other thing that you can focus on instead of just having that one-on-one uh, conversation and speaking out loud about things that might be incredibly difficult. What do you
0: think it is about the artistic process, the process of creation that makes it such a useful component in um, in psychological healing and well-being?
1: So we call art... Making a whole brain activity and it really has to do with the neurobiology um, of what's actually happening behind the scenes Because a lot of times it's easy to focus on um, making a thing and having that product Which can be engaging it can be satisfying to create something But we're really focused as art therapists on what's going on behind the scenes So when you are making artwork using your whole brain connecting the two hemispheres back together um, making connections those kinds of things can be healing because when someone experiences trauma for example Um, As they're experiencing trauma, it shuts down that area in their brain called Broca's area. That helps them to process and understand language. So with these individuals, they're really not able to uh, find words for or explain the things that they've been through. So what art making does is it bypasses that area in their brain, allowing them to find a language um, which can give them the ability to either share their stories, sometimes decades after traumas actually occurred. Um, and it can be a really important thing for people to be able to do that, because as we know with folks who've experienced trauma, the alarm bells can keep ringing and staying in that mode of fight or flight or freeze for, for a lo- quite a long time.
0: Let me ask you were, you, were you an artist first or a therapist first? How did you find your way to this path?
1: So most art therapists it will say that they were artists first. And I think that that's really important because it shows that we will practice what we preach, that uh, most of us have come into the field because we understand the power of art making and how it can be helpful. So when uh, finding art therapy usually is this aha moment where most people will um, kind of realize, like, oh, these, th- this is a real thing. This is a profession that people actually do. Um, and I think that having that understanding of how the art process can be um, healing and have an impact on people's lives is really imperative in order to go into a work where you're working with people who are vulnerable and who are in emotional pain.
0: Before I let you go, let me give you a chance to sort of explain what the Maryland Art Therapy Association is and maybe uh, give advice to folks who maybe want to get connected with an art therapist. Like, how do you determine who might benefit from art therapy?
1: I, I think anybody can benefit from art therapy, honestly. I think it starts with a willingness, but even sometimes not even that. I, I think art making really uh, affects people on a, on a primal level. Uh, the Maryland Art Therapy Association is a professional networking organization for art therapists in Maryland. There are about 140 Art therapists in Maryland, and about half of them are involved uh, in Maryland Art Therapy Association, which we call MATA. And uh, through MATA, what we really work to do is bridge some of the gaps between professionals in the community and focus on expanding services. So one of the milestone things that we did uh, in 2012 was that we created a state license so that we are able to um, have a clinical license on par with other therapists and other mental health professionals. And what that allows us to do is to do things like bill Medicaid, for example, which can reach people People who don't necessarily have the resources or the income to be able to um, seek the treatment that they need so by doing things like that and working together we can find new ways to expand services to uh, find new locations for where we can work um, and really bring that to people because I think in a lot of situations um People really, when, when people are reaching out and people are in pain, they'll they'll try what they need to. So a lot of times art therapy isn't as obvious. People don't often think that art making could be the thing uh, for them to try. So trying to uh, find ways that we can uh, just expand what we do and spread the message is really the, the um, role of the Maryland Art Therapy Association. And on their website, they have a Find an Art Therapist link um, to... Find someone in the state who uh, is licensed, that's the most important thing, is that in order to call yourself an art therapist or in order to, say, you practice art therapy in Maryland, you have to have that clinical license, that LCPAT license. So make sure that the person that um, you're seeking is well-trained, because with the populations that we work with, people that are uh, incredibly vulnerable or in uh, distress, it's really important to make sure that you're well-trained in order to handle that appropriately. Mallory Van
0: Fossen is Associate Professor in Notre Dame of Maryland University's Art Therapy Program. And uh, Mallory, thank you so much for your insights.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: You're tuned to Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Hankin. Today on the show, we're talking about the power of art in the process of healing. And joining us now by phone is Miriam Wajimi, co-producer of the documentary, Charm City. Miriam, thanks for taking the time to talk with us.
2: Thank you so much, Aaron. I'm happy to be here.
0: Miriam, first off, congratulations on this film. It's been shown at the Tribeca Film Festival, AFI Docs, the Human Rights Watch Film Festival, and uh, last month at the Maryland Film Festival. For folks who have not seen it, what is uh, the story behind this documentary? What's it about?
2: Uh, So uh, thank you for that. Uh, Charm City is a documentary that examines what it really looks like to live or serve on the front lines of violence uh, in our city. And so over the course of three years, we followed um, visionary uh, community leaders like Mr. C and Alex Long, of Burrow Street Community Center, um, and Mo Brown, and Eric Winston, and John Corio of the Baltimore Police Department, um, and then City Council President Brandon Scott, um, as they try to uh, grapple with and um, survive uh on the front lines of violence in Baltimore.
0: I want to talk about the impact that this film has on audiences, but first let me just ask you to say a little more about yourself. You're on the phone with us from California today, but you are uh, from Baltimore. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you a bit about your childhood, your family, some of the formative experiences you had and kind of how you started on your own artistic path.
2: Great. Yeah. So I uh, grew up in Glen Burnie, Maryland. So just outside the city line, Mm -hmm. Um, I, uh, I'm one of four, the youngest of four, uh, my dad was um, an Algerian immigrant uh, and a carpenter. My mom, um, uh, born and raised in Chevrolet, Virginia, and a secretary. Um, and I have to be honest with you, I had no concept growing up that um, I was an artistic person or that you could have a career in the arts. Um, but I, looking back now, I realize that um, I had a somewhat uh less than charmed upbringing um my family um struggled with uh uh someone that had alcoholism uh, addiction and um my father went to prison when I was very young and so looking back I realized that um uh in order to kind of get through those experiences as a as a young kid um I retreated into um my kind of own inner world uh and I used to um uh, just kind of explain or to myself that, um, you know, one day I'm going to be able to share this story, share these kind of tough experiences that I went through and it'll matter. Um, and so I think that is when I realized that I had, um, or understood the power of story, um, understood that, um, that, uh, when you go through, uh, challenging things, if you make it to the other side, there's, there's power and healing, um, and, and so I think that that is why uh, when I started getting involved in documentary in the first place, that that um, particular medium really resonated with me. It was not so much about discovering voices, but really recognizing the genius in everyday people and leveraging um, uh, that platform to share that genius with other people. Um, and so, yeah, I've been in the documentary film space for um, about seven years now. I started um, building impact campaigns um, so, the kind of infrastructure around documentary films before uh, making those films myself. And uh, Charm City uh, has been the most formative and um, privileged experience of my life because it's a city, um, because it's a film about this city, which I hold very near and dear. Um, and I'm just grateful for the opportunity to be involved.
0: Let me give you a chance to zoom in on maybe one or two of the people featured in Charm City. You listed several, um, but maybe a story or two that really has, has stood out to you and stuck with you, who these people are and, and just what their lives are about mm-hmm. and what the, the kind of work that they're doing.
2: I think the person, I mean, every single person in Charm City was so gracious to give us their time and um, access to their lives, and they're so inspiring. Um, but the person that really stood out to me was Alex Long. Um, so Alex uh, is um, a young man kind of under uh, the mentorship of Mr. C at the Rose Street Community Center. Um, and uh, Alex um, uh, grew up in, in foster care uh, and uh, found Mr. C. Um, and he is one of the most resilient, kind-hearted, um, special people I have ever met. Um, and so when we met Alex, uh, he was working kind of leading the child's program at, uh, Rose street community center, um, and doing small stuff like leading the cleanup crew with, with the kids on the block. Um, and, uh, has since, uh, become a violence interrupter for safe streets, uh, and is now, um, in, uh, starting his own gym called Ashley's garden in memory of his sister. Um, and Alex has just, gone through so many uh challenging experiences in his life and i think what just stood out to me is his passion for educating and providing different outlets for children that look like him or that had similar experiences um he is focused on you know i think so often um our children fall through the cracks, and Alex is uh, someone that refuses to let that happen, um, and that gives all of himself to um, the kids in his neighborhood. And so um, he's just been a delight to see grow through these last four years, uh, and I'm, I'm just excited to see what he does next.
0: I'm so glad you mentioned Alex Long. We, By pure coincidence, um we did. We did an episode of our of this radio program that featured him and his boxing gym, which he's got up and mm-hmm. running over on uh, Monument Street. Uh, mm-hmm. An awesome guy. Let me ask you, just to talk a little bit about what kind of an impact you hope that this documentary, Charm City, is going to have on Baltimore and the way people perceive Baltimore.
2: When people think of Baltimore outside of the city, they tend to only think about The sensational headlines and the story kind of starts and stops there and so the thing that I have always recognized the thing that I love so much about this city is that yes we have very hard challenges and these challenges are systemic but as great as those challenges are um, even greater is the spirit of our people Um, and to show uh, the resilience and the agency of everyday people who never get any fanfare but that show up every single day trying to do their part in in their small corner of um, of the city matters and is important and is um, and is worth uh, giving voice to and and I just hope that people walk away um, understanding that um, understanding that, that Baltimore is a really special place and that, um, our, our, our community is, um, is just unlike any other place. And so that's what I, that's what I hope people take away. Um, and then I hope that, you know, we, we set out to make a film that was deeply em- empathetic, um, and that gave a new perspective on what is a very polarizing issue, um, uh, around police and community relations. And I just hope that by, um, seeing the people at the center of these conversations uh, that uh, if we can see each other in, in, in those experiences, that maybe we can start working together on what, what is systemically wrong and actually um, make things better for people.
0: Miriam, as this radio program is airing, the Maryland film festival has come and gone. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your screening has happened. If folks want to see, Charm City. Is there any way they can? How, how do they? How do they find the film?
2: Yes, of course. Uh, Charm City is now streaming on Amazon, um, so you can you can watch it on Amazon. Uh, and then there are other screenings around the country uh, through Indie Pop Up Lens, where you can find information on that is PBS.org.
0: Miriam Wajemi is co-producer of the documentary Charm City. Thanks and congratulations, Miriam. Keep up the good work.
2: Thank you so much, Aaron.
0: You're listening to Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Henkin. Coming up, our conversation about the therapeutic power of art continues as we hear how victims of rape and sexual assault are finding healing and solidarity through a nationwide collective art project. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Henkin. Today on the show, we've been discussing the powerful role of the arts as a tool for healing and connection. Joining us now is Charnell Covert. She is a community organizer and collective member at Force Upsetting Rape Culture, an artist activist collective whose goal is to upset the culture of rape and promote a culture of consent. Charnell is also an educator at Towson University, an artist, and a wounded healer. Force, by the way, designs communications campaigns to generate media attention and get millions of people talking. Charnel Covert, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Talk to us about FORCE. How big is this collective? Who's involved? What kinds of projects are you guys working on?
3: FORCE is an amazing artist activist collective uh, based in Baltimore. We like to think of ourselves as locally active, but nationally and internationally spread. And so for us, what that means is we're actually quite small. Our paid staff is only five members. Um, So in some ways, we don't have the same large-scale staffing capacity as some other nonprofits, but we do use and are committed deeply to a collective decision-making process um, by which we have an amazing leadership team of about 20 active folks and also an operations board, um, which gives us guidance for our vision and our work. And what we do is we um, started in 2010 we really were concerned with the lack of conversation that was taking place around rape culture, right? So there really wasn't a dialogue on what rape culture is, how it impacts folks, particularly the, the links between rape culture and other systems of oppression, such as white supremacy and capitalism as it affects uh, particularly oppressed folks and people of color directly here in Baltimore and abroad. And at that time in 2010, this was you know, pre Me Too, pre Time's Up, people really weren't having those dialogues. And so the artists who started the collective, uh, Hannah Brancato and Rebecca Nagle, um, were deeply interested in using their skills as artists, particularly visual arts, to create conversation. What is rape? What is consent? How do we get to it? Um, one of our most well-known early campaigns was a spoof on the Pink Love Consent. I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, pink uh, panties by Victoria's Secret at that time. They had these really ambiguous messages about consent and very winky, cute, flirty ways to almost suggest that no means yes, right, which is literally the opposite of what we believe to be consent. And so we created a campaign that was entitled Pink Loves Consent with a beautiful plus-size black woman model from Baltimore. Um, It went viral people assumed that it was actually Victoria's Secret. And in doing so, we also created consent panties. So the, for example, before panties would say um, no peeking, And then our panties said things like no means no or consent is sexy. Folks were interested in buying them and then made an impact on going into the stores and saying, where are the consent panties, right? And Victoria's Secret is like, we don't know what you're talking about. Um, So again, it created this from the ground up a grassroots sort of upswell Um, social media conversation, conversation um, on what actually happens when we create and shift from a culture where particularly women's bodies, people who are oppressed bodies have been directly affected by every aspect of rape culture, which is inherently violent, which is inherently uh, dehumanizing, and how can we shift that conversation to center folks? So that's a little bit about what FORCE is about, and we're really excited to come here today to let folks know more about us.
0: I want to talk with you more about some of your other projects, but first tell us a little more about yourself, uh, your story, how you got involved with FORCE.
3: Yeah, so it's so interesting because I'm a native Baltimorean, born and raised in Tubman City. I love my city. Um, I went away to school in New York. I left when I was 17 and stayed away for quite a bit, for almost 11 years. Um, but I was raised in a community of organizers. I started my first real job was working with the Baltimore Algebra Project. Shout out to them, an amazing organization here in Baltimore City that is a Black youth-led organization concerned deeply with education, justice, and equity, um, and the and the idea that Black youth need the skills such as um, that are enabled through math, science, and technology to propel them into the competitive global market, and specifically um, the use of training young black folk from Baltimore to have knowledge-based jobs. So we had, when I was around back in the day, kind of dating myself, um, we started the first math literacy workers who were actually certified educators through Baltimore City Public School System um, to teach math in a creative way using a specific pedagogy started by Dr. Robert Moses. And that work, I bring that up to say that that work really planted the seed for me to commit myself to a lifelong journey and career of, of social justice. Um, along the way, I came to terms with myself and my own reality as a victim survivor. I use the term victim survivor, um, Aaron, because it speaks to an intersectional approach Um, Oftentimes, historically, particularly, black women have not been a part of the conversations around survivorship. Historically, it wasn't until late into the 20th century, into the 1950s, that black women were even seen as rapable by the law. Um, And so it's important for me and many others to speak to the fact that we did have a traumatic experience and are victims as well as survivors. So just wanted to put that in context. But realizing that I was a victim survivor of child molestation and then later, as a a young woman, um, date rape in college. Um, the response that I received from the police in the hospital was difficult. And um, I, I buried it for a very long time. I didn't talk about it. It took me nearly seven years to even admit that it happened. And when I did, um, I really was perplexed at the lack of centering of survivors' experiences, victim-survivors' experiences within social justice work, right, I've been a part of um, organizations that did anti-prison work. I've been a part of educations that centered youth. I've been a part, deeply involved in in, uh, work in my church um, that was all about justice for black women and girls and queer folk, and yet there were very little, if any, spaces that centered what victim survivors of rape, sexual assault, and intimate partner violence were going through. Fast forward to a good friend of mine, uh, Mia Musa, who's an awesome community organizer and artist here, entrepreneur in Baltimore, she got connected with Forrest, was doing some outreach for them, and she was like, Yo, you got to know about this organization. Have you heard of them? I'm like, Yeah, I've heard of them. And the Monument Quilt, which is um, the project that we'll be talking about today, she was supporting the work of Forrest to spread the word in Baltimore so that more people could make quilts and tell their stories. Um, So that's sort of how I got connected. And it's beautiful in a full circle way to be able to combine all my interests as an artist, as a community organizer, as an activist, and as a victim survivor myself. Not just someone who studied these issues in college, which I have in graduate school. But it means something deeply significant because of the personal connection. um, And all of the members of our collective are also survivors.
0: Let's segue to the monument quilt when this program airs this will have just concluded on the national mall what is the monument quilt what um
3: what do people see what was involved in it the monument quilt is epic and i really hope that everyone has had an opportunity at the time that this airs to have seen it um the monument quilt started in 2013 it's been showed 49 times Uh, on May 31st through June 2nd marks a super historic and historic moment for us because it's the last time that we'll be showing The Quilt in Public But it is the first time that we'll be showing it in the nation's capital in the National Mall, which was an intentional organizing uh, moment for us to think about. We need a space. We have spaces for war veterans, um, monuments for them as we should. And yet there is no public space or monument for victim survivors of sexual assault and intimate partner violence. So this actually marks. The largest and, as far as we know, in the U.S., perhaps even globally, the only public monument for victim-survivors of sexual assault and intimate partner violence. So what does it look like? I mean, what do people see? It's incredible. You're looking at huge red squares. Each square is uniquely made. Um, The squares are about 4 by 4 so very large, and then put together into big 8 by 8 blocks. There are over 3,000 stories. Over 800 8x8 eight eight blocks that fill about four football fields. Um, the quotes come together to spell out messages of solidarity, not alone in English and espanol, no, no está Sol. Um, And folks get to actually walk through the quilts. It's a very sobering and reflective moment. And in addition to the quilts being on the actual mall, people will also get to experience um, amazing performances by victim survivors, conversations led by connected organizations such as the Names Project, Um, if you know anything about the AIDS quilt in the 80s. The Names Project is what directly inspired the Monument Quilt. Um, we're having a Black Baltimore Survives showcase, which is going to be fantastic. I had the pleasure of curating that with local um, Black artists from Baltimore, mostly Black queer artists. Ebony and Morris, Unique, Michael, Diesel MC, and Abdul Ali will be blessing the stage and centering the experiences of people of color and survivorship. It's deeply incredible, and we're really excited to have this moment.
0: Talk to me about the sort of dual purpose that an art project like this can serve in the sense that it's promoting awareness on one hand, but on on the other hand, it's also doing something for everyone who's been involved in its creation. Talk about um, the folks who participated in creating this quilt. Um, what's it done for them and their own
3: healing process? That's a great question. Um, I do think that there is a way, particularly in American culture, this is me wearing my, my sociologist hat, but I do think that there is a way in American culture that we expect people to process grief and trauma publicly. And that can be deeply, deeply harmful for victim survivors, particularly when we're still in a moment, even with the viral moments that we have in social media, such as Me Too and Time's Up, we are still in a moment where victim survivors are often not believed. And so what we've consistently heard from feedback from folks who have made quilts and especially when they're able to come into our studio come into our studio on 120 West North Avenue come and visit us if you're in the Baltimore area but the sobering and quiet reflection of just being able to have that tactile energy and connect this deeply traumatic moment in a way that you know is going to be centered in posterity that's going to live beyond you that many many thousands and thousands of people will see Um, Folks have found very freeing. And I also want to say that the way that we've been able to collect so many squares is not just because we said, oh, we have this ambitious goal, it's because we've done deep community organizing work with Native and Indigenous communities throughout this country, with Black communities throughout this country, with trans communities throughout Baltimore City, um, organizations that are already doing existing work, and they then brought their people in and allowed them to make quilts. We've done work with organizations that do harm reduction in Baltimore, which we know is a huge issue and terms of, of drug trafficking, et cetera, um, sex trafficking organizations. So just a gambit of folks in different parts of their healing. I think that's the really exciting thing is that you don't have to be at any one state in your healing process to take an hour or th- or three days or three weeks. Some of them are deeply intricate, hand-sewn, et cetera, um, to tell your story. And folks really appreciate that, as do
0: we. And you're seeing your story being witnessed by thousands of people, you're also seeing your story surrounded by thousands of other stories too. So there's right. that sense of community. again that you're 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 not alone with your story.
3: You're not alone. And another thing, Aaron that folks will experience on May 31st through June 2nd will be that they will we have an app that we've been working on and so folks will literally be able to they we have unique coding this project is super detailed shanti flag shout out to her who's our studio director and who's been leading the work on archiving the quilts and so folks will actually be able to find their quilts we have them mapped out in different zones so you could go to zone 22 let's say you made a quilt March 22nd, 2015 at a quilt workshop at the Reginald F. Lewis Museum, you'll be able to see all the other quilts that were made at the Reginald F. Lewis Museum, even if you didn't talk to those people. And that in and of itself is really powerful as a great way of building community.
0: When this show airs, that uh, display of the quilt will have come and gone. But uh, as you say, um, the quilt lives on sort of uh, through the internet. And so let me just give you a chance to... Uh, help people figure out where to find um, access to 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 you and to your work. Yes, online.
3: yes, please follow us at upsetting underscore rape on insta and upsetting rape on Facebook. You can follow us also at www.upsettingrapeculture.com. The quilts will be archived, and we are building currently many, many partnerships with some amazing museums, art spaces, universities, community centers, therapy offices, Um, and so we will be compiling a list on our website that folks can actually find the quilts, Um, and if you're interested, um, folks are interested in curating spaces and having a showcase where we can permanently display them and have the history of those quilts. We're deeply excited about that, too. So let us know. You
0: say this uh, display in D.C. is the last time the quilt will be sort of publicly on its display tour. Yeah. What's What's next? What have you guys got cooking right now?
3: Yeah. So one of the uh, really exciting things about FORCE, again, is that we don't just use art for art's sake. We use art as a tool for healing, as a tool for transformation, and as a tool for true and deep change. And so in that process, we are moving towards, particularly with a lot of the work that I've been doing, we have an amazing sister organization called Gather Together, which is a group of Baltimore-based survivors. I invite anyone who's listening who identifies as a survivor, victim, or victim-survivor of sexual assault or intimate partner violence, please stop by our studio. Uh, Force is open, and we're there as a safe space. But Gather Together meets usually um, twice a month. We have monthly potlucks where folks just come together and break bread, fellowship from survivor to survivor in a casual environment we have a series called the thrive um, skill series where we invite local artists to reflect on their own healing processes and give a workshop on a specific skill that people can use to heal Um, we're uh, branching we just started our first youth program youth voices for consent E. Kadu, who's our amazing youth coordinator, and myself have been um, piloting that program. We are doing a lot of deep community organizing through the listening campaign that Gather Together started, um, that I've had the opportunity to spearhead. We've talked to over 130 people in Baltimore about their experiences with survivorship. And the truth is, Erin, a lot of people think that the way that survivors and victim survivors want to identify is just that traumatic event. That couldn't be further from the truth folks are interested in developing a life, but also interested in connecting their experience to larger social justice movements and movements for change. And so what we're hearing from survivors is that we need basic things. We need housing. We need education. We're concerned about um, building an actual definition of consent in the state of Maryland such that someone else won't experience that. So a lot of our work is going to look like a lot more local organizing, still using art, but also responding to what we've heard from people in Baltimore over the last seven months, to be a good organizer and to be a good leader, you have to listen. And we are just taking lead from our community in what what they need. So really excited about a lot of the partnerships with Baltimore Harm Reduction, faith-based communities, um, SWAPS, uh, Sex Workers Outreach Program, and our Decriminalizing Sex Work Connection. We deeply believe in intersectionality. It is imperative. You can't do this work without um, acknowledging the intersections of race, gender, and class and doing that on a daily basis. So if someone is listening right now
0: who has been or who knows someone who's been a victim of sexual violence or is a survivor of sexual violence and maybe is just at the beginning of their path of sort of coming to terms with that, what do you want that person to know? What do you want to say to that person right now?
3: Well, first, um, I'm so sorry that that happened to you and to your loved one. It should never happen and it's not okay. Second, it's not your fault and we believe you. And third, um, we are excited to be a space that you can come to to get support. If you're in a moment of crisis, we highly recommend contacting the National Assault Outline, Um for Sexual Assault Rain is a great resource that has 24-hour services. Listen, force um, can't do everything. We don't offer therapy and those things, but we are connected in the community. We have great resources on our website, and um, we have folks who are willing to listen, and you can come in and create with us, hang with us, build with us. Um, And sometimes it helps to be able to put your context into your situation and this moment of trauma into a larger context, which many folks have found it feels empowering to be able to be seen as human again and to be human is to truly be able to exercise your rights for liberation um, through creating these movements. So we welcome you to join us in any capacity that you feel welcome to. And if you need help and you can't think of anywhere else to call, shoot us an email at upsettingrapeculture.com, and we will certainly do our best to support. Charnel Covert is community organizer and collective
0: member at Force Upsetting Rape Culture. She's also an educator at Towson University, an artist, and a wounded healer. Charnel, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us.
3: Thank you so much. Hey, guys, coming into our studio, if you want to volunteer, we would love to have you, and we're at 120 West North Avenue. Thank you, Aaron.
0: You're listening to Life in the Balance, where this hour we're talking about the healing power of art. Coming up... That is the sound of a refugee choir. Amy Tenney is using the power of music to work with refugees here in Baltimore. Stay with us. I'm Aaron Henkin. Welcome back to Life in the Balance. Today on the show, the healing power of art and music. We're joined now by Amy Bliss Tenney. She is the director and music therapist for an organization called Rich in Music. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thanks for being here.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
0: What is Rich in music and uh, what kind of work are you doing there
4: rich in music stands for refugee immigrant connection and healing in music and we work with refugees immigrants and other humanitarian um, immigrants in Baltimore and surrounding Maryland uh, using music therapy and other positive music experiences to help heal and provide community and support
0: We're going to hear a little more about what that experience is like. But first, let me just have you talk about uh, the background that you bring to this organization uh, as a music therapist and, as I understand it, also a refugee attorney.
4: Yes, that's correct. I uh, practiced nonprofit uh, refugee and um, other legal aid law for about 17 years before changing careers and going back to school to become a music therapist. And. Once I studied music therapy, I kind of learned that I could continue to work with this population that I love so much of immigrants and refugees and so found a way to merge the two.
0: We learned a bit about the idea of uh, art therapy broadly uh, at the beginning of this program. I wonder if you might talk about music therapy Uh, specifically what it is and and how it works
4: absolutely Um, music therapy is basically using music to reach non-musical goals Um, our our national organization is the American music therapy Association, which defines music therapy as the clinical and evidence-based use of music interventions to accomplish individualized goals within a therapeutic relationship by a credentialed professional who has completed an improved music therapy program.
0: So what does that look like in practice? (laughs) What's an average day like for you?
4: Oh, well, um, I'm not a typical music therapist in the sense that um, I primarily work with uh, refugees and immigrants. Um, but I work in a number of different settings, such as uh, elementary schools. I also work with Asylee Women Enterprise, primarily with adults. Uh, we have a music therapy group and also a choir. And I've worked with a number of different uh, organizations, refugee and immigrant organizations in Baltimore. So I'm very mobile music therapist, and I travel around to the, the different needs in the community.
0: Talk about the sorts of situations um, that these uh, refugees are in when they arrive here. Um, What kind of challenges are they facing uh, as they kind of resettle here in the U.S.? Um, What are some of the stories that that come in and out of your, your choir?
4: Sure. So um, refugees are a little bit different than asylum seekers. Refugees come to the U.S. already having uh, refugee status from the U.S. government. So they go through a formal uh, resettlement process, whereas asylum seekers and many other immigrants are coming to the U.S. uh, more on their own and seeking status here. Uh, But both groups tend to uh, struggle with many of the same issues in terms of Uh, language, um, transportation, the cost of living in this area. Um, Asylum seekers may take a while to receive work authorization, and so um, they are not able to work for a while, which definitely adds to um, some of the difficulties. Um, So in addition to the challenges of integrating into a new country, people are bringing um, much of the trauma and dislocation and other problems that they've had that uh, caused them to come to the U.S. and the United States. And so they have kind of a a double whammy of of things that they're dealing with.
0: Let me ask you to paint a picture of the musical groups that you gather, uh, the choirs. Um, There's there's one specific choir that is kind of like... uh, your uh, your namesake choir yeah
4: <laughs> yes uh, through Asylum Women Enterprise I and uh, another music therapist sister Joelle McLaughlin we co-lead a group called Hope Choir of Nations hosted by Asylee Women Enterprise and this is um, a choir that we meet weekly to uh, practice and rehearse and we've had quite a number of performances lately most recently at the Ethiopian Community Development uh, uh, Council uh, conference in Alexandria last week.
0: How big is this choir and where how many different countries are your (laughs) choir members from?
4: Um, Those are both good questions. It is a a somewhat changing landscape day to day especially as people get work authorization and get jobs we usually have around 12 to 15 people at performances um i'm not sure how many countries are represented maybe five to seven something like that
0: talk about the change that you see come over people's faces when they sing together i mean what is that experience doing for them considering their backstories and the the kinds of trauma that they've experienced.
4: Sure. So both in the music therapy groups as well as in the choir, um, we really see that the coming together and being able to create something new, whether it's singing or playing drums, um, really adds to uh, building community and finding an outlet just for joyfulness, for stress relief, for um, building relationships that can be very healing and very supportive to each other, um, and you know, really, a lot of joy comes out um, from the music making together.
0: And I imagine relationships are built in the process as well. Absolutely. Yeah. You think about the idea of a community art project. You don't. You don't realize that that's exactly what a choir is, isn't
4: yes, it? Yes, absolutely.
0: Yeah. There's. I imagine there's a there's like a, uh, a neurological benefit to making music, mm-hmm. but that benefit gets compounded when you're all doing it together toward a common purpose. Absolutely. What kind of music exactly uh, are is this choir performing?
4: We perform a number of um, different types of music. Some is some sort of simple music um, that is written by uh, other. M- Music therapist called the Daughters of Harriet. And uh, we sing things, some chants. Uh, We sing Lion Sleeps Tonight, which is now going to be popular again because of the Lion King coming out. (laughs) And and also some uh, songs that have come out of the music therapy experience, which are some Togolese songs, as we have a number of members from Togo. And those songs uh, involve dancing and usually pulling the audience in to participate. Um, So we have kind of a variety of different things.
0: These choir members are navigating being in a new place Mm -hmm. and everything that comes along with that. They're also, I guess, closing a chapter that was so traumatic in some way that it forced them to leave their home country. I mean, talk about sort of what you've learned from these choir members uh, about life, about resiliency, and maybe just sort of how that's changed you as a person
4: well absolutely it's um it's extremely humbling um to to see these wonderful people who exhibit so much resiliency as you say, um, so much hopefulness for the future and um, just taking you know one putting one foot in front of the other. Day, day by day, despite memories of some very difficult things and, as I said, the challenges of new, living in a new place. So I think that we are always, uh, those of us who are born in the U.S., are always inspired um, by working with these people, by, by having relationships with them, and, and seeing how much joy they can find um, and express um, in the midst of it all
0: we're going to get ready to wrap up the program here in just a minute so let me give you the last word uh this hour what do you think the special power is that music has and uh, and art more generally mm-hmm. as as medicine as medicine for the soul
4: that's that's a very profound question um i think there's really something in the creating process that is is so healing whether it's uh, singing a song that's already uh, been composed by someone else or creating music or art that's never been seen or heard before Um, and it's uh, the taking the time to look inward and to find beauty and and joy or Um, you know, maybe sadness, too. And that's all part of the experience. But um, I think at its core, music and art are are very human and um, can really help to bind us together in a common humanity.
0: Last thing before I let you go, uh, I got to give you a chance to uh, plug uh, upcoming performances here.
4: Yes, uh, we're very excited that the choir will be performing at the Creative Alliance on Saturday, June 15th for World Refugee Day. There'll be wonderful day-long celebrations there. We're planning to perform about 2 o'clock. It's a great family event, and I hope to see you all there.
0: Amy Bliss Tenney is the director and music therapist for Rich in Music. And, uh, Amy, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Thank you. Life in the balance is an original production of WYPR. the show airs the first Wednesday of the month at 1 p.m. and again at 9 p.m. the program is produced and edited by Katie Marquette whose talent and poise I have admired and appreciated and I want to wish her a fond farewell as she heads on to the next chapter of her life and career you can learn more about the guests we spoke with today and listen to past episodes online at org slash life in the balance. For eighty-eight one WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Aaron Hankin. Thanks for listening.